Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to the History of England, episode 38, Born of the Devil, the Angevins. So here we are in 1154 at the start of the Angevins, or indeed the Plantagenets, depending on your terminology. But before we start, thanks to those of you who've contacted me recently. It makes a big difference to get some feedback and encouragement, so thank you very much. Hands up, those of you who downloaded the original document I posted on the web last week. What did you think of it? Should I do more, or was it actually a bit dull? I love that kind of stuff, I have to admit. And I've got quite a few of them going back to the Anglo-Saxon era, and I'm very tempted to do more, but let me know what you think. Thanks also to Joe, who contacted me asking if I could do some themed podcasts about the big themes that start to emerge in English history, such as the development of a constitutional monarchy. And that's just one of the things that makes the Angevins so interesting. Through the reign of these three monarchs, we really see the start of some of those big themes. The constitutional monarchy the development of English common law, the creation of a genuinely modern English state. And there are loads of other things. If nothing else, there is the most insane family history here. I mean, even if you just put aside all the serious history stuff and treat it like a soap opera, you could never have written this stuff and got away with it. E.g. Father cheats on wife, then takes his son's fiancée as a lover for 20 years, so his wife leads a rebellion against him and is imprisoned. Father dies on hearing that his favourite son has betrayed him. You see what I mean? A note on terminology before I start. Historians through the ages have rather struggled to find the right words to describe the lands that Henry and his sons ruled over. And this is because there's a bit of a modern thinking going on. Contemporaries wouldn't have used any such words at all. As far as they were concerned, there were just a bunch of territories and peoples that Henry happened to rule. The best way to think of the Angevin Empire, I think, is to think of it as a family firm. And once you've got this in mind, it explains everything. Just like the proud industrialist who's built up his own company, 
he runs it for his family. To give his children the best start in life, to make sure they've got plenty of money to live as they want to, and to hand it over to his children and grandchildren. One of the reasons I've gone for the word Angevin Empire rather than Plantagenet Empire is also that I think it describes their centre of gravity much better. Richard the Lionheart, for example, is often criticised for only being in England for ten months, but this is a very Anglo-centric point of view. Richard had been bred in Aquitaine, and he was a child of the South. He had just as many lands abroad, and that's where all the trouble was, so that's where he spent his time. The whole start of the extraordinary Angevin story comes with a myth, in the finest tradition of kingship but this time with a bit of a difference. The story goes that an early Count of Anjou came back from his travels with a strange but beautiful woman called Melusine. She was dark and beautiful, and although her refusal to attend Mass caused raised eyebrows, pretty soon she and the Count had four sons. But the rumours grew and grew, and the muttering of the Count's subjects grew louder and louder, until eventually the Count had no option but to force Melusine and her sons into a church. As the priest raised the host above his head, Melusine gave a scream and flew shrieking out of the church window, taking two of her sons with her. Now, I don't know what your family myth is, but this was the myth of the Angevins, and they gloried in it. Henry himself said, Do not deprive us of our heritage. We cannot help acting like devils. And Richard the Lionheart said something very similar. And truth to tell, it would explain an awful lot. For this isn't a family for quiet living and good works. In Your Face doesn't even begin to describe it. In 1150 then, a quick look at the map of Western Europe would have told you who wore the political trousers. Louis VII's lands stretched over large swathes of France, despite some relatively powerful neighbours in the Count of Anjou and the Duke of Normandy. But by 1154, the situation was completely transformed. One of the reasons for this transformation was standing next to Henry at the Cathedral of St Peter in Poitou in a quiet ceremony on the 18th of May 1150. Henry was 17 and Eleanor was 11 years his senior. Eleanor was the heiress to the Duchy of Aquitaine which was made up of vast swathes of land in the south and southwest of France. To see just how vast, go and have a look at the map at thehistoryofengland.typepad.com. Just a few weeks earlier, these lands belonged to Louis VII of France, but now they would belong to Henry Fitzempress, the Count of Anjou, and claimant to the throne of England. It seems inconceivable that Louis VII should have divorced Eleanor and given up all that wealth and power, and certainly it had nothing to do with a lack of passion. The two of them had been married in 1137, when Eleanor was 15 and Louis was 17. Louis was wild for her. In the words of John of Salisbury, he loved the Queen almost beyond reason, with a love that was almost puerile. Eleanor was an elegant bride, who brought with her all the poetry, music and sophistication of southern France to the rather more staid north. While Louis swooned, Eleanor caused outrage with her forthright views and expectation that her opinion should be shared. She seems to have missed the point that her role was to be quiet, modest, decorous and have lots of babies. The leading and famous churchmen of the age, Bernard of Clairvaux and Abbot Suger, deeply disapproved of her behaviour. Bernard wrote a horrified description of the way that Eleanor and her ladies dressed. The garments of the court ladies are fashioned from the finest tissues of wool or silk. A costly fur between two layers of rich stuffs for the lining and border of their cloaks. Their arms are loaded with bracelets. From their ears hang pendants 
enshrining precious stones. For headdress, they have a kerchief of fine linen which they drape around the neck and shoulders, allowing one corner to fall over the left arm. This is the wimple, ordinarily fastened to their brows by a chaplet, a fillet or circlet of wrought gold. As a side note, we're still in the age of untailored clothes, which hung from the shoulders rather than following the form of the body. Sleeves and hemlines are long for the sake of modesty, but would be wide and flowing for the sake of style, with sleeves often falling as low as the knees. There's a lot of cloth about, so we're talking three layers, starting with a fine silk or linen shift with a tunic over that, and for special occasions, maybe a sideless gown like a surcoat over that, and maybe even a long mantle over all of that. To get some excitement into things, noble women would wear contrasting colours between the surcoat and the tunic, and they would cut out shapes in the mantle to show the colour of the fur beneath. None of this impressed our Bernard. He compared Eleanor to one of those daughters of Belial who, got up in this way, put on airs. Walk with heads high and mincing steps, their necks thrust forward and they drag after them trains of precious materials that make a cloud of dust. So I appear to be on clothes and dress now, aren't I? So better keep going with that just for a bit. The dress of most people was of course a good deal more basic than that of the court. Most men wore a tunic, which again hung from the shoulders and was belted at the waist. On the belt would be a knife and a purse. Under the tunic, they wore wide-bottomed woollen or leather breeches called braise, and the normal footwear was a basic leather slipper and wooden clogs for work, maybe. In winter, they'd wear a woollen hood or cowl as well. Their womenfolk would wear pretty much the same thing without the braise and with wider flowing sleeves. You won't be surprised to learn that Eleanor was of course not alone in wearing rather more sumptuous and outlandish clothes. Fur was a particular mark of opulence, with the king using the best furs such as ermine and sable, while others would have to be more comfortable with things like cat. Generally though, clothing was rather untailored and rather unshaped. The button, for example, doesn't get used in clothing until much later, which meant that getting ready for the well-dressed aristocratic lady was something of a chore. If they were wearing their sleeves tight, for example, they would have to be sewn onto them. There were complicated arrangements of ties and sashes, which meant you really needed help. Despite William II and his long curly shoes, men remained unexcitedly dressed with sensible shoes, long tunics and belts, pretty much like the peasants, but better materials. Things would get a bit wilder, but we're going to have to wait to the end of the 13th century for that. Personality-wise, there's little doubt that Eleanor was more than a little wild, headstrong and domineering. She was also clearly competent and capable, well able to rule her lands in Aquitaine. Like the male Angevins, she was perfectly prepared to choose love over duty, such as her affair on the Second Crusade with her uncle Raymond Poitiers. Unlike the men, though, this was not something she could get away with. But by 1150, Eleanor had still not given Louis a male heir, only two daughters, and while Louis remained besotted, Eleanor had clearly tired of him. Louis felt honour bound to divorce Eleanor in search for a male heir, and he was gutted. Eleanor, on the other hand, had already spotted her target for a replacement in Henry of Anjou, and it took her only eight weeks for her to marry Henry, which gives a pretty good idea that it must have been pre-planned, a setup. Louis was livid. He'd had no ideas at all of their plans, and had not only lost a large part of his wealth and power, but it also handed it straight over to a rival in the Count of Anjou, who had been a bunch of troublemakers for centuries. 
and nor was Henry in a mood to make him feel any better, refusing to pay homage to Louis for Normandy. So Louis responded with an invasion together with Stephen's sons Eustace, but to no avail. Imagine then Louis's horror in 1154 when Stephen died and Henry came into the throne of England. Now he was really in the poop. He faced a young, energetic rival at the head of a vast empire. So what kind of bloke was Louis dealing with? What strikes you most clearly about Henry is a sense of enormous energy and restlessness, a man always on the move physically and mentally. He was of middle height with a reddish freckled complexion with a large round head and grey eyes. He was a stocky man with a bull neck, his chest was broad and square, his arms strong and powerful. So this is a man that impresses you as energetic and physical, but at the same time intelligent and articulate and pretty well educated. He reputedly knew all the languages from England to Jordan, but spoke only French and Latin. He was clearly forceful, but unless he lost his temper was perfectly courteous. He was straightforward and unpretentious, not standing on ceremony and with frugal tastes. All in all, he was a pretty impressive bloke. There's a lot more description of Henry than his predecessors, anecdotes and vignettes that make him much more immediate. His favourite oath was by the eyes of God, considered to be very poor form indeed, but following in a well-trodden tradition of royal swearing. It was said that he rarely sat, even at mealtimes, preparing to eat and conduct business standing up. Make no mistake, Henry was not a man to mess with. But he had a will of iron, and that could make him enemies. He could be amazingly volatile like all the Angelins, and if he lost it, he really lost it. When his temper went, which could be without any provocation whatsoever, his face would turn purple. He could even throw himself on the ground and roll around, screaming with fury. On one occasion, he famously pulled the stuffing out of his mattress and crammed it into his mouth in rage. So think toddler, deprive of ice cream. Henry's basic problem, by and large, would be his family and his inability to control it, and his voracious sexual appetite and any sense of self-restraint around that. This is the good old traditional mistress thing, but really with the most unfortunate choice of mistress. Really. So yes, he'll have the traditional bag of medieval royal challenges in external wars and internal revolts, and then there's Thomas Beckett, of course, but the one thing that really brings him down will be his kids. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So there they are then, the two big players of the age, a sparkling golden partnership, Henry of Anjou and Eleanor of Aquitaine. It was most certainly a fruitful partnership in the early years before everything turned sour. No shortage of royal heirs. Eleanor had eight children between 1153 and 1166, so let's just think about that for a moment. Really, there can't have been many months when the poor thing wasn't pregnant. Anyway, of these eight, seven lived to majority. In age order they were Henry, Matilda, Richard, Geoffrey, Eleanor, Joanna and John. And in some way... All of them play a direct part in the story. So, I'm conscious of dawdling. Sorry about that. Back to the action. When Henry came to the English throne in December 1154, he had three priorities. Firstly, he had to sort out some family problems to make sure his brothers Geoffrey and William were appropriately looked after. Secondly, he had to get his English kingdom in order 
And thirdly, he had to make sure the borders of his territories were secure and his family's territorial rights asserted. So number one was his new kingdom of England. Now you might think that he faced a bit of a nightmare acceding to a war-torn country racked with civil war and disobedient barons who would do their very best to give the new king a bit of a kicking. He was, after all, the son of the much-despised Anjou, traditional enemy of the Norman dukes. But actually, his situation was nowhere as bad as you might think. For one, he has complete legitimacy. Through his mother Matilda, he's a direct descendant of Alfred and Cherdich. There are no other claimants to the throne. The only possible man, Stephen's son William, had signed away his rights and showed absolutely no desire for the job. And more importantly, the barons and the nobility were tired. In the words of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, they'd had 19 years of winter. Yes, initially there'd been quite a lot of fun settling old scores and grabbing a few rights off the church. But as time had gone on, the benefits of law and order had become ever clearer and clearer. The barons had started to make their own agreements, and basically in the end they'd refused to help Stephen and Henry perpetuate their war, and told them to play nice and just learn to share. Another thing that helped him was a lot of convenient deaths. Basically, many of the key players that had caused and participated in the anarchy died before Henry came to the throne, Ranulph of Chester most notably. In addition, David King of Scots had also died in 1153, which meant that the King of Scotland was a 12-year-old Malcolm. Nonetheless, there were some big hairy-looking problems. Nobles had encroached on royal land during the anarchy and were likely to want to try and hang on to them. Nobles had built unapproved castles, and some of these guys had been supporters of Matilda and Henry. So they'd been more than a bit miffed with the thanks for that, knock them down now would you, or I'll come up there and knock them down for you, message. The biggest and hairiest were the earldoms of Northumbria, now in Scottish hands, which is not something that any red-blooded king of England, French-speaking Angevin or otherwise, would want to put up with. Henry dealt with all of these problems so well, maybe it's made to look a bit too easy to the modern eye, and we're inclined to underestimate the scale of the achievement. Basically, Henry proved very firm. He didn't let anyone get away with anything. He was also fair, though. The same rules were applied to supporters of Stephen and supporters of his mum. And he was also pretty merciful for your average medieval monarch. A minimum of noble private parts, or indeed any other extremities, were removed. Even William of Epe, Stephen's captain, was able to end his life in relative comfort. When some lords, such as William of Amal in York, refused to surrender their castles, Henry was up there before you could say Jack Robinson, and the lords quickly caved in. The rest then followed. Family problems caused rather more argy-bargy, though dealing with his brothers was nothing like the problems Henry was to have later with his wife and kids. Henry had two brothers, Geoffrey and William. Geoffrey was the biggest problem. Henry's father, also called Geoffrey, had on his deathbed made Henry promise to give Anjou and men to Geoffrey the Younger. This would have won the Harold Godwinson Oath-Taking Award, since it was an oath Henry had absolutely no intention of keeping, since it would have split the Angevin possessions into two completely unmanageable chunks. So by July 1156, Geoffrey had been stripped of everything except three castles. In 1158, he managed to get hold of the very significant town of Nantes. Now Nantes sits at the mouth of the Loire on the coast, and had therefore been much sought after by Angevins for a while, since it therefore controlled trade going up the river to Anjou and Touraine. Without wanting to be unfair to Henry, he would at very least have appreciated that every cloud has its silvery lining, 
when Geoffrey died in 1158, and therefore Nantes fell back to Henry. As far as the other brother, William, was concerned, Henry wasn't even planning to give him the rough end of a pineapple. William was still in the king's household when he died in 1164, aged 28. So much for family then. Now there was the third area, establishing the frontiers of his kingdom. This sounds like a comfortably defensive phrase, but don't get me wrong. After the Great Revolt of 1173-4, Henry's policy does tend to be pretty much a defensive one, but up to then he was aggressive and on the make, looking to push his borders out as much as possible. After all, what kind of epoxy, two-bit, no-good cotton-picking territory do you call England and half of France? Surely he needs more. Let's start with Scotland, which turned out to be a bit of a walk in the park. The young Malcolm IV, or Malcolm the Maiden as he was known, was in a difficult position when he met Henry at Chester in 1157, on account of the fact that he had many rivals for his throne, and he was only 16. Henry was unhappy with the concessions that had been made to Malcolm's father David while England was in the grip of civil war, i.e. being given Cumbria and the earldom of Northumbria. The fiefs were held from the King of England, but they were a bit close to Scotland for Henry's liking and he demanded them back, in return for the earldom of Huntingdon. Malcolm wasn't able to resist all of this. And so for the moment everything looked very good on the Norman frontiers, though Malcolm's brother William the Lion was going to be far less inclined to accept the deal and was on the lookout for a way to get Northumbria back, but that's for later. In Wales, things were very much less comfortable. It's very unlikely that Henry had any intention of actually trying to conquer Wales. His policy was purely to put an end to the chaos of the anarchy and re-establish his authority over the Welsh princes, on the same basis as his grandfather Henry I. At the time, there were two main princedoms to deal with in Wales. The northern kingdom of Gwynedd, led by a man called Owen, and the central kingdom of Dehubarth, led by a man called Rhys. There were some basic territorial politics about both kingdoms. Both had a mountainous heart, but needed control of local agricultural areas to make their kingdoms viable. So for Rhys and Dehubarth, the central area of Cantref Moor was the hilly heart, and Ceredigion in the west provided the agricultural hinterland. In Gwynedd, it was the mountainous heart of Snowdonia, and the agricultural Anglesey. Against these were the Norman Marcher Lords, who now held most of south and southwest Wales, and a strip along the northern coast centred on Rudland. Henry I's strategy had been one of support for these Marcher Lords against the Welsh princes, and Henry II started with the same approach, and his chance to establish his authority came in 1157, when Cadwallader of Gwynedd asked for his help against his brother Owen, claiming he'd been cheated of his rightful inheritance. This gave Henry a chance to show who was boss, but it was far from plain sailing. The English fleet tried to do a bit of plundering in Anglesey and was soundly beaten up. Henry himself was ambushed as the main army advanced along the coast and had to run for his life at one point. But the main English army was too strong for Owen to contend with, so the overall objective was in fact achieved when Owen submitted. Rhys of Dehubarth had decided not to join Owen against Henry on this occasion and he came forward to meet Henry too. But the decision he got didn't make him very happy. Henry demanded he gave back the region of Ceredigion to the Norman Marcher Lords, and it meant that de Hubarth was restricted to the hilly area of Cantref Moor. So however happy Henry felt about his visit, the truth was that he'd not really solved anything. He'd neither overrun the Welsh princes, nor established an effective long-term relationship. A few years later, Rhys lost patience, and in 1162 he broke out, and he started capturing Marcher castles, so the following year, Henry II launched another expedition, defeated and captured Rhys. 
Henry wanted a more permanent solution. So in 1164, he called both Welsh princes and the King of Scotland to a meeting at Oxford. His attempted solution was for the Welsh to submit to a full vassal status, i.e. rather than being a client kingdom, they have now simply held their lands from the king like any other lord. Caradigian was not to be given back to Rhys. The compensation seems to have been that Rhys and Owen would be referred to as kings and have some sort of supremacy over the other Welsh kingdoms, such as Powys. This went down like a lead balloon, and all of Wales erupted into rebellion in 1164, with Owen and Rhys combined against the English. Henry carefully prepared a major invasion in 1165, which was a disaster, forced to retreat in the face of the Welsh, the rain and the mud. It meant that until 1170, the Welsh were free to wage war on the Marcher Lords, capturing key castles and territories like Rudlern and the Ceredigion. By 1171, and the death of Owen, Henry was flexible and intelligent enough to understand that an accommodation was now possible. It was time to change the policy of slavishly supporting the Marcher Lords against the Welsh. There's no formal agreement that's reached us, but from this point forward Henry supports a status quo that allowed Rhys to keep his larger princedom and a balance between Welsh independence and the Marcher Lords. The result was that the Welsh princes generally supported Henry, with Welsh longbowmen and knifemen fighting for him in his foreign wars, and in the 1173-4 revolt. In France, Henry always had the measure of his main opponent, Louis VII. By the time Henry came to the throne, they'd already crossed swords, as in 1150 Louis had tried to push Henry out of Normandy, horrified at the match he'd made with Eleanor. But once his horror had subsided, the first few years are marked by an attempt for the two kings to get on. So in 1156, Henry did homage for his French fiefs to Louis. And in 1158, they arranged a marriage between their families. Henry, the eldest son of Henry II and the heir to the throne, was betrothed to Louis's daughter Marguerite. The dowry was to be the Norman Vexin. This crucial bit of land had been given away by Henry's father Geoffrey and he was desperate to have it back. The castles there were really all that stood between Rouen, the Norman capital, and the French. So you can see Henry's thinking. This all sounds quite straightforward until he realised that Henry the Younger was three and a half years old, and his betrothed was just six months. It'd be interesting to know what chat-up lines Henry used, but you can see that Louis would have thought that it'd be years before any castles have to change hands and anything could happen. Meanwhile, it'll keep that King of England chap quiet. Wrong again. By 1161, Louis knew what he was dealing with. First of all, Henry couldn't keep his hand out of the biscuit barrel. Eleanor had a claim to the county of Toulouse in the southeast of France. Henry VII had also claimed it, and Henry couldn't resist and invaded. Louis threw himself into the capital and stood in his way, and eventually good sense prevailed, and Henry withdrew. But then in 1159, there was a disputed papal election, and Henry backed the man to be called Pope Alexander. And in return for this support, Pope Alexander gave Henry permission to go right ahead with the marriage of Henry and Marguerite, despite the daft ages. So in 1160 the ceremony was duly performed, and Henry marched in and took possession of the Vexin. Louis was livid, but his campaign of 1161 was ineffective, so he had to let it go. But from that point on he knew what he was dealing with. He never really managed to get on top, didn't Louis? But then Louis married Adela of Champagne in 1160, and by 1165, Adela had given birth to the Angevin's nemesis, Philip Augustus. So that takes us to the stage where Henry is pretty well established in his kingdom, 
and we get to the middle bit of his reign where he gets to do all that important, earnest stuff before his children come along to mess it all up. Henry is a king who reinvents the legal system and the government administration, but he's also a man who makes the odd faux part along the way, and there were no part more faux than murdering the Archbishop of Canterbury. So we'll get to all of that stuff next time. I say next time because I'm going away for the weekend with my daughter for a bonding session, so we'll have things to do even more important than podcasting, incredible as that may sound. I also realised that I forgot to make any book recommendations. Oops. Anyway, I'll be back in two weeks' time, and in the meantime, have a great time, and thanks again for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.